and uh, cause us to uh, recommit ourselves and rededicate ourselves and redouble our efforts to uh, be yielded to the truth of your word and that we will be more of what we ought to be for you, more of an example, a better testimony, and that we would not be a reproach, but that we would be a, a shining light to point men to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Ephesians chapter number 4 tonight is where we're going to begin. <coughs> I appreciate so many of you all being patient with us as uh, Sunday was just a kind of a mess of a day there and we uh, ended up, I struggled with whether to cancel the services or not. I think it was a wise choice in hindsight. Uh, so many people that needed some help that morning and uh, just some things that were going on. And uh, But uh, we missed out on being here Sunday. And uh, just want to recap, this is our, uh, Lord willing, our last week that we're going to be finishing up on the topic of um, repentance. And it's really, we're, we finished our teaching on repentance itself. Uh, as of last week, we gave just a, a nutshell kind of overview and summary of what we've taught over the last several weeks. Uh, with the idea being, the rest of the story is the, the title of the message that we're doing in two parts. Tonight is part B. And... Um, just because uh, repentance from our sin is not something that we look at as uh, being a part of our salvation. Uh, one of the, the difficulties in teaching on that particular doctrine is uh, there's a propensity of uh, we as humans to then say, well, if we don't have to forsake our sin in order to be saved, then do I really have to change my life at all? Is there any, is there any reason to even try uh, to forsake our sin or to get away from our sin after we are saved. And so I don't want folks to get the idea that uh, you get saved and then you just don't worry about your life. You just keep going the same way that you've been doing in your sin. And there are people that will do that. They'll say, well, I was saved by the grace of God. And, and yes, we are. And I'm thankful for that. And we are saved without works. And yes, we are. And I'm thankful for that. But we ought to allow the Holy Spirit to begin a work in us where we grow day by day in the Christian life. And so we're going to take a little bit of time dealing with some things that are not for the lost. Uh, up until now, we've been dealing with an issue that deals with those that are lost and how to get saved. But as of tonight, we're going to be dealing with those that now have trusted Christ as their Savior. What does the Bible say now? What now? What do we do now? What's the rest of the story? And so we want to take a little bit of uh, opportunity I'm going to take you to uh, four or five passages of Scripture. We'll be brief tonight. Uh, I think my voice will hold out. Hopefully it will. If not, we'll, uh, we'll make tonight the final night anyway, regardless. But uh, once we get saved from the grace of God that is applied to us simply by our faith in Him, nothing else, our faith in Him is what activates the grace of God. And we said last week, uh, there are some passages of Scripture that mention repentance, and I'm not afraid of the word repentance now that we know what it means to repent. It is not a repentance of forsaking our sin, but a repentance from our unbelief to a belief in God, trusting in Him and putting our faith in Him. And so this is the repentance I've spoken of. The reason some passages deal with it and some do not, as best I can tell from the New Testament, is that the ones that mention repentance... Uh, along with that salvation, the idea that they need to turn from their unbelief was because the people that were being spoken to at that point in Scripture 
were those that were actively rejecting Christ at that time. Uh, they denied Him. They were not looking to Him. Uh, there are other times, and I mentioned one last week, uh, with regards to even like the, the uh, Ethiopian eunuch, when Philip went to him, uh, there's no mention of repentance anywhere in it. Uh, to me, and that should be a telltale sign in and of itself, that if re- forsaking and repentance from your sin was a necessary part of salvation, it would have to be in every account of, of what it takes to be saved in Scripture. No, no apostle would leave that part out if that was something that had to be done. But why did Philip not tell the Ethiopian eunuch to repent? And the best I can tell from every aspect of things I've seen in Scripture is the Ethiopian eunuch was not rejecting Christ. He was already at the point of, I've trusted Him as my Savior. Now what do I do to be baptized? He said, what doth hinder me to be baptized? Uh, He had already read the Scriptures. His heart had already opened to the truth. And so he did not have a need to repent at that point. He needed just to simply put that act of faith in place if it had not already been done so. And so Philip uh, basically said, this is what would hinder you from being baptized if thou believest with all thine heart. Notice he didn't say, if you've forsaken your sin. He said, if thou believest with all thy heart, thou mayest. And of course, the Ethiopian eunuch was baptized. So obviously he had believed the Lord with all of his heart. So there was no mention of repentance because he was not denying Christ at that point. The time that Philip came to him, he had already put his faith or his trust in it, or at least knew that that was the truth, and was not rejecting the truth. And so some people that would say, well, uh, it's, it's in some portions, it's not in others. That's, that's the best I can tell as to why uh, each of these portions of Scripture do deal with it. If you take time to go back again through every instance of it in the New Testament, those that you find that are told to repent uh, include people that uh, were actively at that point still rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Um, so, so now that you're saved, now that you've trusted Christ as your Savior, then does that mean that we continue in our sin? Does that mean we don't need to worry about sin in our lives? Well, now that we're saved, there's something that takes place on the inside. The Bible says, And you at the quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, meaning we've been made alive. We know that the Holy Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians, that, that the Holy Spirit is residing in us, that we are the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in us, which we have of God, and we are not our own, for we are bought with a price. The Bible says, therefore, glorify God in your bodies. And so there's a, obviously teaching on this. So let's look at several things here. Ephesians chapter number 4, and we're going to take it now on the rest of the story, on the other side of salvation now at this point. Then what, what kind of a regard should we have toward our sin? Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, let's look in verse number 17. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 17. Now, keep in mind, who is he speaking to here? He's speaking to the church at Ephesus, so people that have already trusted Christ as their Savior. Verse 17, he says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their minds. Now, uh, these folks at Ephesus, um, there were already Gentiles in that church, obviously. So when he refers to them as other Gentiles... He's speaking to those, and oftentimes in the New Testament, they will use the term Gentile to mean those that were not saved at the time, generically. In this case, when he refers to the other Gentiles, he's speaking not the ones that have been saved, but the ones who have not been saved, those that have not trusted Christ as their Savior. So again, who is he speaking to here? He's speaking to believers. He's speaking to those that have trusted Christ as their Savior. 
And verse 17, he says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye, those of you that are saved, ye, henceforth, meaning from this point forward, walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness, but ye have not so learned Christ. In other words, now that you're saved, you should not live like you did before you were saved. Notice that this took place not to get saved, but now that they are saved. So for a Christian to say, someone who's trusted Christ as their Savior to say, well, I'm just going to live my life and I'm not going to worry about uh, trying to change anything in my life at this point, then we're not following after what we ought to be doing as Christians. Notice he says here, (coughs) verse number 21, If so be that ye have heard Him and have been taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus, that ye, again speaking to the Christians, that ye put off concerning the former conversation. What conversation did we have formerly? We were lost. Before we trusted Him as our Savior, we were lost. So we are to put off this former conversation. He refers to it as the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful us, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after Christ is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, put away lying, speaking... Uh, I'm, I'm going to back up. Let's stop at verse 24 for a moment. And he says, and that you put on the new man. So the new man is, is there. He's saying, live like it. All right? which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So this, again, is what takes place when we get saved. God gives us His righteousness on our account. And what Paul is saying is, this righteousness that's been given to you for Christ's sake, on your, on your account for Christ's sake, live like it. Live like it. Follow after it. Notice what he says here. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man the truth which, with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be ye angry, and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Now, we spoke of this a number of months ago, because this verse is often misquoted and misapplied. (coughs) I don't know how many times I've heard preachers get up in a marriage conference or a couple's conference and go to this verse and say, uh, you, you shouldn't let, uh, let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, get it right. Don't go to bed mad, is what they were saying. That is not what the verse is teaching. In chapter 4, Paul is not dealing with somebody who's angry. Paul is dealing with somebody who has a problem with their former man, and he's saying, I want you to live after the new man. Forsaking, notice what he says in verse number 25. He says, putting away lying, speak every man the truth with his neighbor, And then he says this, Be ye angry and sin not. In other words, be angry at your sin. So angry that it causes you not to sin. Be so so despising the sin that you're angry at it. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. 
Now, I like, I like when the Bible references itself and explains itself, don't you? I mean, you can listen to what Brother Greg's opinion of something is, but it's even better when the Bible explains itself, isn't it? When we think of not, don't let the sun go down in Scripture, where have we heard that before? Let not the sun go down. In the Old Testament, during a battle, the enemy are starting to get away. They said, don't let the sun go down. Joshua said it this way, let the sun and moon both stand still. Let them stand still. I don't want the sun to go down yet because there's a battle yet to be won. There's a fight to be done. And what, what the writer of Ephesians, Paul, is saying here is, be angry at your sin. And, and don't do it because of your anger. And don't let the sun go down on that anger. Don't let it, don't let it fade away. Don't allow sin to lose its sinfulness to you. You say, Pastor, how do you know what it means? Because it sits in the middle of verses that are dealing with us getting victory over our sin. Notice what he says in verse number 27 right behind it. Neither, what? Give place to the devil. Now that sounds to me like somebody who's angry at their sin, mad at the devil over this stuff, and he's not going to get over this anger. He's not going to let the anger of his sin ever wane or get to the place where his sin is acceptable to him or he just doesn't really have any feelings one way or the other on it. Folks, as Christians, you and I need to live every single day of our lives angry at sin. Angry at the sin that is in our lives. Angry at the temptation that comes our way. And don't let the sun go down on it. Keep it fired up. Keep it stirred up in your hearts. And then he says, "...neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor working with his hands." the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And there it is again. He's talking about not being angry in verse number... Uh, uh, 25, or being angry in verse 25, but then in verse number 31 it says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you. And some people could say, well, down here he's telling them to not have anger. Well, he's speaking here of inappropriate or unrighteous anger in verse 31. And in verse number 26, he's dealing with righteous anger. There's a big difference here. Because notice what he says at the end of verse 31. He says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with what? With all malice. It ought to be that which we detest. We can't stand it. Sin has no part in my life. Now, are we still going to sin? Sure enough. The old man's still with us. But what should our attitude toward it be? We ought to be angry at it. It ought to cause us to be, every time we, we fail, and we sin. We willingly step into a temptation. We ought to be, Lord, I am so sorry, and I can't believe I did that. What a horrible thing to do to my Savior. And there ought to be a, seri- a, a spirit of contrite brokenness in us. An anger at our sin that we had let, let that happen in our lives. And this ought to be the way it is in the Christian's life every single day. But here's what happens. 
We start off that way in our Christian life, perhaps, or as we're taught these things, we begin to see it and we begin to get angry at our sin as we grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But because we're in the world but not of the world, sometimes the world continues to wear away at us. And we let that view of our own sin begin to, begin to diminish. The sin doesn't seem as sinful as it used to be. What Paul is telling this church in Ephesus is, folks, don't let that happen. You need to put this stuff away with all malice. I mean, you ought, you ought to be angry at this thing. You ought, to, you ought to despise it. Notice what he says in verse 32. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Why would he say something like that? Because he knows that no matter what the best efforts of a Christian is to do these things, no matter what his attitude towards sin is, there are going to be times where he's going to mess up. And during those times, Paul's saying, listen, folks, be kind one to another, tender-hearted. Notice this, forgiving one another. Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. That's the way we're to give, for, to forgive. Now, he didn't tell the unsaved people to do this, did he? He told the saved people to do this. He told those that had trusted Christ as their Savior, you need to have anger at your sin. You need to despise it. You need to walk away from it. You need to turn from it. You need to have malice toward it. You need to keep your attitude stirred up about it. It ought to give you a bad attitude about sin. That's the only thing I would ever tell anybody to have a bad attitude about. is their own sin. And be kind to one another when someone is overtaken in a fall. When someone does sin, be willing to forgive them. Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Let's look in Ephesians chapter number 5 and verse number 1. We're going to continue to read this. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear what? This is how we know he's speaking to Christians. They're the children of God that he's speaking to here. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself, uh, uh, given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. But fornication and all uncleanness... By the way, have I told you what all means in the Greek? It means all. All right? All uncleanness or covetousness let it not be once named among you. Not only don't do it, but live in such a way that you can't even be accused of doing it. Don't even let it be named among you. As becometh saints, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather the giving of, th- but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, or unclean person, or covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of what? Disobedience. The truth came to them. They rejected it. Turned from it. They did not trust Him as their Savior. And this is the group of folks that the Bible says the wrath of God is going to come upon It's not God's desire for that to happen. I think that's where the world sometimes gets it mistaken, and I think sometimes even Christians do. God takes no joy in having to give His wrath out to those that are lost. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He takes no joy in that. 
He does so because He's a holy God. He's a righteous God. He's a just God. Be ye therefore, be not ye therefore partakers with them. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So, so when does this new walk begin? When does this forsaking of our sin begin? Once we become children of light. That's when we begin. It is not required for us to become children of light. It's something we ought to do once we are children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them, for it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. (coughs) The rest of the story, lest we get to the point through the teaching on the doctrine of repentance that we say, well, if I don't have to forsake my sin, then I can get uh, get saved and get my ticket to heaven, and then I can just keep living the way I want to. No, no, that's not at all what the Bible's teaching us. When we get saved, something happens on the inside. We're made a new creature. The Holy Spirit of God comes to live inside of us. We become children of God. Paul refers to us here as children of light. We used to be in darkness, now we're children of light. Walk like it. That's what he's saying. If there's ever any forsaking of sin, if there's ever any uh, repentance from sin, it would be for a Christian to follow. To turn from his sin because I'm a Christian, not to become a Christian. Now that we are saved, we ought to follow after Christ. We ought to live in such a way. Not everybody knows these things the first moment they get saved. Some people grow quickly. Some people forsake this sin quickly. Some people grow in their Christian life quickly. Some not so quickly. Some know this ahead of time before they ever get saved. And so they launch their Christian life striving to hate their sin, to follow after Christ. Some have no idea of this when they get saved. They just know that they're a sinner. They know there's a penalty for sin. They know there's nothing they could do to save themselves and that Christ made a way. And if they would put their faith in Him, they could be saved. That's all they knew when they got saved. And they need to be taught. They need to grow in grace. They need to come to church. They need to be taught in the Word so that they would know how to live once they are saved. Look with me at Romans chapter number 6. Romans chapter number 6. Come on back up to verse number 5, chapter number 5. We're going to read two or three verses here in chapter 5. I'm going to read the very first uh, two verses, actually, I think, here uh, in the chapter. Therefore, being justified by what? Faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Does that say that we've already cleaned up our life anywhere in there? Does it even mention sanctification at all? Not at all. We have peace with God the moment we get saved. But notice he says this, "...by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God." Paul goes on to say, as he gets down to the end of chapter number 5, and he's, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but in verse 8 he says, this is where he says, "...but God commendeth His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us." By the way, 
we were sinners when we got saved. We had not become righteous before we got saved. Now notice as he gets down here to verse number 19. I'm sorry, verse number 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace is what does this. Now Paul makes the question that is the age-old question. Verse 1 of chapter 6. What? Shall we say then, uh, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, he was saying if, if grace abounded more than sin, wherever sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Should we then continue in sin now that we're saved? So that the grace can continue to abound? Notice what he says here. God forbid... How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Once we get saved, the Holy Spirit of God comes to dwell inside of us. There's something that's made alive, made new inside of us. And when it comes to the issue of our sin, we ought to look at it, we ought to refer to it as, that was the old man. It died when I got saved. I don't follow after the lust of the flesh any longer. That's not my desire. Now, does it still pull at us? Absolutely. Does it still tempt us? Absolutely. But I don't fall under its control or its reign anymore. God hath made me free from the law of sin and death. He's given me a way of escape now that I didn't have before. He's given me the Holy Spirit of God that gives me the strength and the power to resist temptation. I didn't have that before I was saved. You know, before I got saved, I didn't have a whole lot of I didn't have a whole lot of conviction about when I did wrong. The only kind of conviction I had when I did wrong before I got saved was the conviction that mom and dad put on me. The threat of a belt. That was it. Or the threat of getting caught. I had no conviction of my sin. But I'm gonna tell you what, when I got saved, and it didn't happen all at once, but I'll tell you this, it began to happen. Something happened inside of me. Do you know I don't have to worry about my dad's belt anymore? My dad passed away a number of years ago. I didn't have to worry about my dad's belt for a number of years, even before he passed. But you know, there were still things that caused me to resist temptation and to try to not sin as much as possible. And that was the Holy Spirit of God that worked in my heart. I didn't want to sin anymore. Oh, there were moments, there were times of temptation that still would rear its ugly head up. But, you know, I didn't have to fear Dad's belt anymore to keep me from doing wrong. There was something different. Why? Because where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. But that doesn't give me the reason to say, I'm going to just keep living in my sin. There should be something different now. Look with me in verse number 11. Verse number 11, Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. This is what a Christian ought to live by. By the way, have you ever found yourself as a Christian not wanting to read Romans chapter 6? Because as a Christian, it is very convicting. 
Because we don't live every moment of every day with the thoughts of chapter 6 of Romans in our hearts. Notice what he says. Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. When we got saved, we were quickened, we were raised from the dead. We're not in the sin, the, the, the deadness of sin anymore. Notice he says in verse 14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? What does he tell them? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey? Whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness, whichever one ye yield yourself to, you're that servant. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered unto you, being then made free from sin, ye become the servants of righteousness. We've been made alive. We didn't have it until we got saved. But now that we're saved, there's something new in us. There's something that ought to draw our hearts. I've shared this story a number of years ago of a friend of mine, Brian Maloney, down in Florida. In fact, I was talking to my mother about him just this week. I remember sitting in his living room for an hour and a half sharing the gospel with him. He'd been raised in the home of two deaf parents, deaf parents, and they had gone to church when he was young, but it was a deaf church. And he, being a hearing young person, he said, Pastor, you know what it was like? I was, my mind was ever which way because they were just signing. They weren't talking. And I, I wasn't paying any attention. I went, through, I went through the gospel message with him for about an hour and a half. We had to start all the way back with a man's fall in the Garden of Eden. We had to talk about when Christ came to this earth. He knew all that. He said, Pastor, I know all that. And I said, Brian, do you understand why Christ came to this earth? I said, He came to die on the cross. He said, I know that. I said, He did it to pay for your sin. And boy, you should have seen his eyes. Forty-some years old, it got wide. His face lit up. I'll never forget the expression he made. I was sitting there with a friend of mine, Brother Bob Green from BIMI. He was sitting there on the couch next to me, and he'll, he'll vouch for this. Brian looked at me. He said, so that's why he came. Forty years old, he did not know why Christ had come to this earth. He knew that he had, but he didn't know Christ had come to save him. He bowed his head that night and trusted Christ as his Savior. He owns, he owns a roofing business down in Florida. And uh, started coming to church, got baptized, started growing spiritually. And uh, about four or five weeks after uh, he had gotten saved and baptized, he came to me after the service. He said, Pastor, i got to share something with you. He said, I was up on the roof last week. He said, I, I hit the wrong nail. And those of you that are men know what I'm talking about. Uh, he's roofing. He used a hammer and he, he hit his thumb. Smashed. He said, it, it, it made a mess of it. He had it all bandaged up. He said, it just popped on the end. He said, it was, a, it was bad. He said, I'm sitting up there trying to take care of my thumb and my men stopped working. He said, a whole crew of guys up on the roof stopped working. They look at me just sitting there staring at me. He said, I couldn't figure out what was going on. He said, I looked at him and I said, what? They said, what's happened to you? 
He said, what do you mean? They said, any other time you would have been throwing your hammer off the roof and cussing like a sailor. He said, Pastor, I didn't even realize it. He said, I quit cussing. It wasn't something he had been taught. There was something new inside of him. He didn't know these things. He said, Pastor, is that supposed to happen like that? I said, well, sure. The Holy Spirit begins to do a work in your heart. I don't know how many times I've heard folks say things like that. I can give personal testimony in my life how the difference, how I viewed my sin after I was saved. It didn't happen before, but it sure happened after. There was something made alive in me that caused me to realize I needed to get this thing settled. I needed to deal with these things. Verse 18, he says, Being then made free from sin, you become the servants of righteousness. That ought to be the description of every Christian. Become servants of righteousness. It's five after eight. I'm going to give you two verses with very little or no comment. And we're just going to read them to you and you can get out of them what the Lord will lay on your heart there. Let's turn to Second John chapter number 1. I say chapter number 1 because there is only... You get to chapter 2, you got the wrong Bible. Alright, John, 2 John, let's look in verse number 1. The elder, speaking here not of a pastoral position, but because he was up in years when he wrote this. He says, The elder unto the elect lady and her children, speaking to the church and those that were part of it, whom I love in the truth, and know, not I only, but also all they that have known the truth. For the truth's sake, which dwelleth in us, and shall be with us forever. Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth, as we have received a commandment from the Father. And now I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new testament unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning." That we love one another. And this is the love that you walk after His commandments. This is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. Who's he writing to? He's writing to the elect lady and her children. Those that have by faith trusted Christ as their Savior. If a Christian had to forsake their sin in order to be, or if a lost person had to forsake their sin in order to be saved, why would there be any need for any of the apostles to write to any Christian that they need to put off the old man and put on the new man? Wouldn't they have already done that? The new life begins at the moment we are saved. The walking in the new man begins at the moment we get saved. Not in order to get there. It's not something that happens in our life and then we have the merit or the wherewithal to stand on to say, okay, now I can trust Christ as my Savior because I've gotten my life straightened out. No, no. You come to Christ as you are by faith. God will do the cleaning. His Holy Spirit will begin a work in your life. And you'll be taught from the pages of this book, now that you're saved, here's how you ought to live. Your children of light, act like it. Walk that way. 
Lastly, Romans chapter 13. This is the last one I'll give you and then we'll be done. Romans chapter 13 and verse number 8. Romans chapter 13. Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Keep that, keep that phrase in mind. And knowing, and that knowing the time that is now that now is high time to awake out of sleep, and now is our salvation nearer than we believed. The night is far spent; the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in riding and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envy, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Once again, Paul saying, this is how you show your love. This is how when we get saved, because of what Christ has done for us, because of the great love wherewith He loved us, we now need to walk as children of light. We now need to, because of our love for Him and what He's done, we now need to do what He says in verse 14. Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put Him on. Make every effort to imitate Him. To live as He would live. To live every moment wondering, Lord, how would You deal with this situation of life? And do everything we can to do it the way He would. And he says, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust of Lest we get to the place where we teach on the doctrine of repentance, we understand it biblically, and then say, well, that means I get saved and I can live however I want. No, no. Now that we are saved, now that we have trusted Him as our Savior, the Holy Spirit now comes in and begins to do a work. And we need to sit and understand from Scripture how we as God's children are to live from that point forward. Are we always going to succeed at it? No. But I'm glad we're still saved. Are we always going to make sure that we live perfectly? No. No. We're still going to make make mistakes. We're still going to sin. We're still going to give in to temptation. But it really ought to grieve us at this point. It ought to be something that really hurts us because we realize that we've hurt the Lord Jesus Christ. We've offended Him. We've caused a reproach to His testimony. I hope this has been a help to you. We've spent about five or six Wednesday nights on the topic. And tonight's message was very important, I feel, because I did not want someone who would go back and listen to the series of messages to say, well, pastors giving people a license to just go and sin and live however they want to. No, that's not the case. But you just don't have to give up the sin in order to get saved. Once you are saved, God will start to work in your life. And you'll begin to put on the new man. And you'll begin to forsake the old man. And I've learned this in my life, that the more I walk in my daily life, 
yielding a little bit more today than I did yesterday. God gives me a little more light in His Word. And now I take another step. And I learn a little bit more. And I understand a little bit more. But folks, it's a journey. It's not something that happens immediately for every person. There will be a change, but some are going to change fast and some are going to change slow. We need to, as children of light, learn to walk after the things of the Lord, to study this book and to live according to what He has dictated to us in Scripture. Not to get saved, but because we are saved. To be a good testimony. Let's stand together and I hope that's going to help to you. Father, we're thankful for Your Word. I pray that You would take the last several weeks of studying on this issue Lord, I know some people would be 